Well, I don't know if you guys realize it, but this study through what is the church is taking way longer than I meant for it to take. And that's okay because I really didn't care how long it took to begin with. But our timetable's just been a little bit off. And so I thought it was a good place to start if we reviewed where we've been so far and what we've talked about because each of these lessons have been so spaced out because of ice storms being snowed out, business meetings and special meetings that I wanted to make sure we were all on the same page because we've only really talked about what the church is three times. This is the fourth lesson in that series. So we started out talking about what the church is and, and the main purpose of this was to address misconceptions about the church. We talked about the anatomy of the church. What is the makeup of the church and what comprises it? And then most recently, we talked about the leadership of the church or the head of the church, and we put all of that together. So those misconceptions, whenever we lo we're looking at the introduction, we asked, what is the church? That's the most simple question we could ask. And we kind of just pointed back to what the church literally means. It means that it's the called out. Literally, the word for church in the New Testament means called out. It's taken from the word ekklesia, which is made up of a preposition, ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which is the infinitive verb, I call. Right? The church is the called out, it is local, and it is visible. Those two words are important. The church is local, and it is visible. When we looked at the anatomy of the church, we started to get into the nitty-gritty of not only what is the church, but what does it mean to be the church. So we moved past definitions, and we started to look at what makes the church up. And we looked at four elements. There's that skeletal system, those things that give the church its shape and its form, these are the unnegotiables. These are the things that do not change. These are the uncompromising issues of the church. Just like our skeletal system, it gives us our shape. There's also internal systems, like our heart, our lungs. Those things that really give the church its heartbeat, that keep it going. And those are the attitudes, those essential attitudes that make the church what it is. An important note, when you get the attitudes right, Structure takes care of itself. A lot of people put a lot of focus on making sure their structure is what it needs to be, all the while looking past attitudes. I promise you will never get the attitudes in a church right by getting the structure right. You will always get the structure right by getting the attitudes right. That is what makes the church. The third part is the muscular system. This is what we do. This is how the body moves. This is how we function. And there's that fourth system, the skin, the outside part, the part that everyone sees. And what do we say the programs of the church are? How important are they? Does anyone remember? Scale of 1 to 10, do the programs of the church matter? They don't matter at all. They can change. They can be replaced and they will not change the identity of the church. A church that is in decline can change their programs, and they will remain in decline. A church that is growing can change their programs and will continue to grow. Why? 
because the internal systems matter more. The structure matters more. These three elements are more important. And then last time we were able to meet, back in Feb, the beginning of this month, we've had a business meeting and then we had a guest speaker. So three weeks ago, we were able to talk about what the head of the church is. Now this is important. The anatomy of the church doesn't make sense if we've just got the structure and we've just got the internal systems and we've got all the muscular systems where they need to be. It doesn't work unless it's obeying the head. And the head is Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church because He is Savior of the church, shepherd of the church, sovereign over the church. He is the sanctifier of the church. We ran past that pretty quick on February 4th, but there it is. Why does the head matter? I think that's an important question. Why does... I'm sorry. Why does the head of the church matter? Why does the leadership of the church matter? Because no matter what we do, no matter how hard we serve, Without the power of Christ, nothing will happen in the church. Not only is his leadership important that we would follow him in obedience, but his leadership is literally the power of the church. It is what makes things work. Well, that's our review section. I want to talk about where we've been. Because also part of what we have done is we looked at these ten muscular systems evangelism and teaching, I'm sorry, evangelism and missions, teaching and preaching and teaching, prayer, discipleship, worship, all of these different things. And we've started to put on a list the ministries that we could identify in our church. And we put them up here and we said, what muscles do we have? This is Kind of a hard process to go through, but I want to point something out. I didn't make the list. You all made the list. We made it together, right? We worked through that list together. I've spent a lot of time looking at it and starting to piece together where it is. And We had a motion, not, not a motion, but we had some business in our last business meeting appointing a prayer a research committee to look at invigorating our prayer ministry. And I want to use tonight, not only to teach Scripture, but I also want to explain why we're doing what we're doing. And I also want to identify where we go next. Self-evaluation is one of the most uncomfortable processes we can ever go through. How many of you have to do self-evals at work or have had to do self-evals at work? Now, I have a question. Whenever you did, actually, you don't have to answer this, but when I did self-evals, I, I, I really did not like the process. I didn't like reviewing them. I didn't like thinking through them. But the more I did them, I found that they were more effective than even my manager evaluating me. Because as I evaluated myself, I saw clearly what I wanted to work on. 
When I evaluated myself, I saw clearly, and a lot of times what happens is the things we're most interested in are the things we're best at. And that's really not a productive way to go about life, to just focus on doing the things we're best at if we're focused on trying to grow. So I made three groups. There are things that are very clearly our church's strengths, things we are doing phenomenally well. These are the areas or 10 muscle systems that had a bunch of ministries listed in them. On the other side, there are those muscles that are at risk of atrophying. There are those muscles that when we try to use them, it hurts. There's also a middle ground. There's simple opportunities. Let me show you my list. It's very clear to me that our church is good at teaching and preaching. The majority of our ministries revolve around that. And we're very good at shepherding. This was something I really think we should celebrate. We are really good at shepherding. Within all of our ministries, there is a component of taking care of other people. And I, I specifically want to commend the WMA, which in our meeting we were talking about the way that the WMA cares for various people within our church. And we're very good at giving. I mean, God, that's phenomenal. Our church is very good at giving. Our opportunities, these are things where we have some ministries that are focusing on them, but I don't think they're quite as strong as they could be. This is my opinion. Building up families. We have some good ministries for building up families. The nursery workers do a great job at that. Sunbeams do a great job at that. But how do we connect parents into those ministries? I think that, that leaves a little bit of room. We're good at fellowshipping, but this is just my observation. We're good at fellowshipping with the people we're most comfortable with. I don't know how we push that. And we're good at worship. The comment was made as we made this list that everything we do is worship. The reason I didn't put worship in our strengths, because I think it could very easily go there, was as I reflected on this, I heard in the back of my head, if everything is worship, nothing is worship. We apply that principle at work. And I think it makes sense that it would go here. If not for that, I would have put it under strength. And then our threats. And this is really where our focus is, right? These are the muscular systems that either are not being used enough, that they're beginning to become tense, or these are the muscular systems that we've really got to pay attention to. We've got to look at where these come from. Prayer. Discipleship. Evangelism and missions and training. Four clear areas of desperate opportunity. We've taken some action on this. 
I mentioned appointing the committee for researching or kind of coming up with a plan on how we would create a prayer committee or a prayer ministry. I'm looking forward to hearing their recommendations. I hope that you all are as well, and you continue to remain in prayer for them as they do that. But what comes next? We can't just go off and create ministries to fill all of these voids. We'll run ourselves tired. Tonight we're looking at the example of the early church. The example that the early church gives us, the model that they give us, what is the example that the church should grab hold of in order to be healthy? What comes next? The next point of our what is the church study should answer that question. If you have your Bibles this evening, and I hope that you do, if you don't, we can get you one. I'd like you to open them to Acts chapter 2, where we will be looking at verses 42 through 47. Verse 42 through 47. And here's the question I want to plant in the back of our mind as we read this text. I said one of our opportunities is training. How many people were in the original church? The first church. Three thousand people. Pretty big church. How were they trained? Who trained them? What kind of training have you guys received for the jobs that you have? I'm not talking about the church. You guys have jobs. What kind of training did you undergo for that? Come on, this is the real thing. It's what you've been trained for. Four years? So, so like, what do you mean? Four years of what? So like classical education, college, right? So that's a form of training. A lot of professions require that we have classical education. Um, I'm going to admit that's not the right route for everyone. As a matter of fact, I've not benefited the most from my classical education. It's gotten me in more trouble than anything. Um, so, but classical education, absolutely. Educators, doctors, they have to receive training that focuses on education to be able to do the job that they do. We husbands are still in training. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll call that on-the-job training, right? <laughs> so, and on-the-job training is actually a really good point because it can go two directions. On-the-job training, sometimes that means you just get thrown into the fire and you figure it out. Sometimes it means somebody gives you an SOP, a standard operating procedure, and they walk you through a task that needs to be done. What else? What other kind of training have you received? Student teaching. Student teaching. So they call that internship. Internship, which kind of falls in the category of mentorship or apprenticeship. So this is that middle ground. 
And by the way, this is the most valuable training I've ever received. Because you can stuff a lot into a book. You can consume a book. It doesn't make any sense until you try to put it in practice. I used to tell my employees at a, whenever they went to a continuing education thing, they'd come back and they'd have all these ideas of things that they wanted to do, and I would just tell them to stop. The worst thing you can do is read a book and try to apply it the next day. Right? You shouldn't believe anything your pastor says when he gets back from a continuing education, anything, for at least two weeks. I'm just, there's patience involved. But mentorship and apprenticeship crosses that practical with the, the I don't know how to describe it, it's too late, but it's, it's the most valuable training I've ever received. I mentioned continuing education. Some professions necessitate continuing education. Teachers, lawyers, medical professionals, real estate agents. All these people need to stay up to date. I don't know about pastors. but They need to stay up to date on what's going on. How did the early church then become equipped to carry out the work of ministry. Think about that as we read our text. Verse 42, the Bible says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the, break, fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I wanted to point out before we got going in this text that there's really two cause and effects that you need to pay attention to. The first one shows up in verse 43 when the Bible says, All came upon every soul. Doesn't that sound awesome? Wouldn't you like to know that when you come to church, all is going to come upon every soul? Wouldn't you like to feel that? Well, what's cool about this cause and effect relationship is we can look at that in verse 43 and move on back to verse 42 and find out because why. Why did all come upon every soul? Because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's number one. Number two, because they were devoted to the fellowship of the believers. Wow. Wow. They were devoted to spending time together. Number three, because they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Specifically, now we got to put this in our context. When it says breaking of bread, we're talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. That observance. And by the way, when you look at this text, how often were they doing the Lord's Supper? 
Every time they met. Anyone, any other ideas? Every time they came together, they were observing the Lord's Supper. Why is that significant? Because the Lord's Supper is two things for the church. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which gives us this picture, it's two things for the church. First of all, it is a remembrance of what has been done for the church. And second of all, it is a time of thanksgiving. It is a time of rejoicing. When you spend time rejoicing, you know what naturally flows out from you? Joy. When you spend time rejoicing, you have more joy. The fourth thing is prayer. The early church was devoted to prayer. In fact, the definitive article, the, is right before prayer. They were devoted to the prayers. How can the church... Be sure that all would come upon every soul. I'm not sure if this is regulative. I'm not sure if it's an example to follow. But it certainly worked for the first church. It might be worth a try. We'd be devoted to the apostles' teaching. We're going to talk about that. Stick a pin in that. To the fellowship of believers. The Lord's table and prayer. I mentioned that one of the consequences of rejoicing or spending time rejoicing was that you're a more joyful person. There's a second cause and effect. If you look in verse 46, we find that this early church received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. When we say food, I've put it in quotations because I believe the text makes it clear that we're not just talking about physical food. What did Jesus say about man living on bread alone? That's right. He can't do it. We're talking about spiritual food as much as we're talking about physical food. Certainly the element of physical food's there. I don't want to dismiss that, right? It's definitely there. But noticed in our list of items that we're building up upon, it includes the apostles' teaching. It includes the Lord's table. It includes prayer. Three out of those four things are not physical sustenance. They're spiritual sustenance. And so how can we be sure that people as they're receiving the spiritual food are filled with glad and generous hearts? Well, again, we can go back and look at this cause and effect. All who believed were together. There's fellowship again. And they had all things in common. They weren't competing with one another. They viewed each other as equals. They were selling and distributing whenever there was a need among them. They were going to the temple and breaking bread together. Some of that we have to explain, but let's move on for the time being and we'll circle around to it. The early church came together And they are an example to the church today. 3,000 and most likely, if we want to be more precise, we know there were 127 disciples before that, so at least 3,127. Believers came together and they were able to meet and, and 
they were able to carry out the work of the church. By the time we get to Acts chapter, well, here's my point. They operate under the apostles' leadership for seven whole years without many problems. Do you think churches could do that today? I think the American church would really struggle to follow that model. I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm not trying to... No shots have been fired. I'm just trying to acknowledge reality. This is amazing that the church is able to do this. The answer comes when we look at how it was that the church took shape. The issue on the day of Pentecost is that the Spirit came and filled the believers and it guided them in all of these things. Loved ones, do we not say that the most miraculous thing that has ever taken place in the church is that one person has been saved. The second most miraculous thing that has ever taken place in the church has been that those believers were called together. And if you don't believe me that that is truly miraculous, you don't understand human nature. People do not naturally come together in a church-like setting. It doesn't happen. Not unless they're jockeying for some kind of position. Like, I understand how legislatures do what they do. But for the church to come together for the purpose of Christ, for the glory of Christ, to sing glory to His name, this is astounding. What starts as at the Spirit's prompting only succeeds to the degree that the Spirit remains to be followed. When we fall away from those first moments, those first fruits of salvation, when we forget what it means to place our faith in Christ, the reason I am so passionate that every Christian needs to remember the gospel starts with the confession of sin is because the moment we walk away from that is the moment we start trying to be a good Christian by our own strength. That will never succeed. The moment we try doing God's work by our own strength, we are committed to being failures. I mean, you can try that in other areas of your life and you can have marginal success. You can do things on your own and be relatively successful. I promise you won't naturally follow God's will. But especially in the realm of spiritual things, when we're talking about preaching and teaching and evangelism and missions and prayer and discipleship, these things will never happen when we try to accomplish them on our own. The church started because the Spirit-filled believers... The church exists because the Spirit didn't abandon those believers. Stayed with them. He stayed with them. The church is around today because He continues to indwell believers. There's a lot of different models of church. If you take time and you study how churches operate, we kind of call them like different programs. There's the pulpit-driven church where the focus is on the preaching of the Word. I'd like to believe that I'm a good enough preacher to be in that church, but you guys, I'm not. And frankly, I don't want to be a pulpit-driven church. There's the program-driven church. The program-driven church keeps everything going. They do all the stuff, and they serve in all the areas, and everyone's exhausted, and they go home, and they say, Oh, I'm doing it for my labor of love. 
but there's no spiritual life in them. They're so tired, there's no joy on their face. I want to just be a spirit-led church. I think that's the goal. Not pulpit-driven, not program-driven. Just spirit-led. I don't care what that means. I don't care if that means looking a little crazy. To tell you the truth, I'd rather look crazy in front of my friends than fail before God. Oswald Chambers has a quote that stood out to me, and this is a well-known quote, so I included it here. There's no such thing as a self-made spiritual leader. He is able to influence other spirituality only because the Spirit is able to work in and through him to a greater degree in those he leads. To be a spiritual leader doesn't necessitate talent or training or skill. It simply requires that you know God. The leadership principle that we've often discussed, you cannot lead someone where you've never been. You cannot lead someone to be closer to God if you've never been closer to God. This is the problem with leadership. You're always going further. Well, getting to the real body of my message, I kind of took a rabbit trail there. I want to discuss four qualities of this church on the days of Pentecost. And I want to point out one more time that this is not the founding of the church. A lot of people look at Acts chapter 2 and they say this is when the church originated. The church began when Jesus Christ was on earth and he was baptized by John the Baptist. That's when the church started. From that point forward, the church was building itself through Jesus Christ's ministry. I asked the question about training. I don't want to leave that unanswered. But I do want to point out that Jesus gives us a pretty clear example of what it means to train someone. As he called the twelve disciples to him, the first thing he did is he let them observe him do ministry. He let them watch. Second step, he let them help. When they were feeding the great crowds, he let them participate in this ministry. He let them help. The third step is he helped them. Remember when Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples are there trying to heal this sick man and Jesus comes down and says, how's it going? And he shows them that they were misdirected. He helps them in ministry. And eventually it came time for the ascension and Jesus left. And now he just watches them do ministry. Still guided by the Spirit, still distracted in that way. But Jesus gives us a model for what it means to train people for ministry. Four qualities of the church at Pentecost. The first one is that they had a sure knowledge of salvation through Christ's death and resurrection. When I look at the church today, not our church. I actually mean that in a universal sense, so you can crucify me later for that. When I look at believers today... All around the world, everyone's very interested in being able to define what salvation is. Whether or not somebody's really saved or they're a heretic this way or that way or the other way. I'm preaching to myself more than anyone in this room on this point. I think that does more harm than it does good. 
I'm very interested in contending for the truth. Facebook's not the place to do it. No matter how wrong other people are. The early church had the benefit of being sure of salvation through Jesus Christ. They kept things simply. They didn't divide over small issues. And this was the key to their success. This was the key to their success. The second thing that they had was an objective basis for their faith. I said I wanted to come back to this issue of the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This was their objective basis for truth. They had 12 apostles that they went to as an authority on all issues. Now let me ask you a question. Does that mean that you should go to the pastor of your church as the authority on all issues? Who's confident enough to answer that question? Very good. Why not? I'm not an apostle, that's why. I, I am a bishop, an overseer, an elder. I am not an apostle. The apostles didn't let other people become apostles. They were the apostles. And by the time the apostles were done, what did we have? We had the Bible. So we still have an objective authority for faith, don't we? We have it contained in the 66 books of Scripture. We have it in canon. Boom. This is our authority. This is the apostolic authority in the church today. It's contained in the Word of God. And this is authoritative for all people everywhere in the faith. So we still have an objective basis for faith. Third thing that they had is that they had all things in common. The word for fellowship, koinonia, literally means life together, life in common. The emphasis that we see in this passage on the church members spending time with one another, I think is revealing. Spending time with one, one another was what allowed them to have things in common. Now we're given some specific examples. They sold what they had and they and gave them to the apostles to basically be managers of or stewards to distribute it as needed. And, but look at verse 45. When they're selling these things, they didn't just sell it willy-nilly. As any had need. The church cooperated together because they knew the needs of one another. They cared about one another. They, they cared for one another. You know what the church lacks today? More than anything else, you know what the church lacks to get today? <laughs> and I feel like I just rant about this sometimes. We lack authenticity among each other. We just lack authenticity. The world sees it. Other Christians see it. We can preach about it. We can teach about it. Until we're blue in the face, it's not going to change anything until somebody says, I'm going to try to be a little different. There's a financial element where they were meeting the needs of each other. The church viewed each other as equals, and when there was need in the church, that need was answered. Do you live your life and this blows me away. I was actually visiting with a church member a few weeks ago that was concerned about something, and I told them they didn't have to worry about that part of their life. And they couldn't believe what I was saying. 
Do you live your life with the confidence that if you needed your church's help, they would show up for you? Or do you live your life thinking that whenever you struggle, you have to hide it from people to keep up with the appearance that things are going well? I'm I'm not advocating for socialism. I'm advocating for compassion. Especially within the church, this is the way it's supposed to work. Actually, you want to break this down. Do you know why social programs fail? It was very simple. The federal government is too big to be able to manage individuals. God's model was never that the church would be under the auspices of a higher authority. We said that the church is local because this is God's will for the church. You know who can take, people, take care of individuals without them abusing it? The church. Christians should be so close with their fellow believers that they're not afraid that they might run into a situation where they need help and they won't know where to go in order to get it. I'm very thankful in many ways that I've seen this demonstrated in our church. Was it in 2021 that I was stubborn and didn't want to get my air conditioning unit replaced? Brother Stewart came over with two portable air conditioning units. I mean, beast of a unit. And he put one and he set this up. He set it up in my bedroom so that it blew directly. It was awesome. My air conditioning unit's not as good as those portable units, just FYI. And he set another one up because our house was too hot. And I didn't even ask for help. I think Michelle maybe asked for help. She goes around me a lot of times. That's Christians caring for Christians. That's loving one another. That's compassion towards one another. And guys, this goes much further than financial and physical things. It talks about the spiritual. If three out of four of these things are spiritual, do we care about people's spiritual well-being? We talk about praying for one another. Do we think it actually helps? If we believed to the core of who we are that praying for someone actually helped, we would never miss an opportunity to pray for someone when they came to our memory. That's just the facts. For people to be galvanized into the oneness in Christ, it takes time to be together, to listen to each other, to care, and be for each other. When we neglect fellowship, what we are really missing out on is an opportunity for our hearts to be cleaved together. The church needs to prioritize having fun together. These words I thought I would never say. I honestly thought I was too reformed to utter these words. We need to do things that are just fun. We need to let our hearts come together. And I'll tell you the benefit that'll come from that. People in our community will see the love that we have for one another. And in the example that Christ gave us, they will be drawn to that. The fourth quality was that the church had gladness and simplicity of heart. 
as they praised God. Gladness and simplicity of heart. When we look down at verse 46 and we see that they were rejoicing as they praised God and they had favor with all people. By the way, that's the third cause and effect. Favor with all people came because they were praising God. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Being the church is not nearly as complicated as we make it. It turns out you do not have to be a theologian to be an active member of a church. I will say I think someone has to be the theologian. Being the church is pretty simple. It's only when we overcomplicate it that these muscles begin to be neglected. When I look at this list, the only thing that was on our app, I forgot the word I used, our threat list, our, our, the, the only ministry that I see that is at threat, it's not fellowship, it's prayer. And I said that prayer cannot, I mean, it's the foundation of all of the church's ministry. So when I think of those other things, discipleship, evangelism, and mission, training, I think training is something that we could turn our attention to. I think the danger of looking at training too soon would be we would overcomplicate what simply needs to be spirit-led. I think discipleship takes care of training and needs to be a major focus. I think evangelism and mission pour out of discipleship. Where does that begin? It begins in prayer. That's why I've made the decisions that I've made in the past month. I hope I've answered the questions I set out to answer. Let's close 